turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 11, as we're going to continue in this series, Rediscovering Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So let's look at Mark 11. We're going to look at verses 12 through 25 today of Mark 11. So let me pray for us before we jump in and read God's Word together this morning. Remember, this is God's holy and infallible and living Word that transforms lives, transforms cultures and nations. Hear now God's precious Word, Mark 11, 12 through 25. Well, let me pray. Father, we do pray that uh, you would bless uh, your word this morning, that we, we need to hear it, and I pray that you would encourage us this morning. Uh, pray that the power of your word would overwhelm and uh, conquer the guilt and the shame and the fear that we might feel, uh, that, Lord, it would um, conquer even our own opinions, um, that, Lord, we would be wrestled to the ground, our own wills and our own desires. Would you rule and reign in our lives and use your word to transform us that we might be renewed and we might be encouraged and that we might be drawn closer to Jesus and then grow in deeper dependency on him. So we pray for your blessing now. Open your word, open our eyes to your word and our ears to your word this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, this is Mark 11, 12 through 25. Here we go. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, Jesus went to see if he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were asking, seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Well, last week we looked at the question, What kind of Jesus do you want? And today we're similarly going to look at Jesus as Mark presents him to us. And he's the Jesus that we don't expect, okay? And and he's certainly the Jesus that the Jews, when Jesus went into the temple to turn tables over, they didn't expect. And even the disciples, they didn't expect the way Jesus was presented this way in Mark. So we're going to see two things about Jesus this morning. Hopefully we'll get to the second one. The first one is the power and the character that Jesus brings. And then the second thing that we're going to see is how Jesus produces, reproduces that power and that character in us. So first this morning we see Jesus, this story when Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple and we see the power and the character that Jesus brings. So Mark tells us in verse 15 that Jesus walks into the temple, right? And as he walks into this temple... Let me tell you, you would have been blown away if, if you would have been there with Jesus. You would have been blown away at the magnitude of the size of this temple. And not only would you have been blown away about the size of this temple, but even the beauty 
of the temple itself. It was an architectural wonder. One of the wonders of the world. This was the third temple of the Jews. And it was still under construction by Herod. Herod wanted to appease the Jews. Herod was very wealthy. And so he threw his resources, his manpower, his labor into the building of this temple. And it was a grand structure. So as Jesus walks into the temple, you walk in through the gate uh, of the temple and you reach this outer court. And this was the largest part of the Jewish temple. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. Uh, It was the only place that non-Jews were allowed to be within the temple walls. And you had to go through that gate and then go through the courtyard in, in order to reach the rest of the temple. And this courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles, was this open area courtyard, and it was absolutely tremendous. It was 35 acres in size. Now, some of you might think, oh, what's 35 acres? That's pretty much the footprint of Valley View Mall, okay? That was the courtyard of the Gentiles. It was huge, tremendous area. And this courtyard was enclosed by this massive portico, like a porch, surrounding this rectangular courtyard. There were hundreds of columns that supported this portico. Each column rose 35 feet into the air, and at the base of the column, it would take three grown men joining arms to get around the base of that column. That's how huge these columns were. It was a tremendous structure. So you get a little bit of a sense of the temple and the outer courtyard just for the Gentiles. So this courtyard was massive in size, and here it was the merchants who would come to sell their sheep or their doves or their pigeons for sacrifice. There were the money changers who would exchange currency so you could purchase animals to sacrifice. So when Jesus walked into this temple courtyard, he would have literally seen tens of thousands of people milling about in this courtyard. Thousands or hundreds of merchants selling their sheep or their pigeons or their doves. Hundreds of money changers with their little booths set up where they would exchange money. It was like a circus. You ever been to the State Fair on opening day? Golly. I went to the North Carolina State Fair in Raleigh several years ago. I mean, it was a zoo. You hardly had room to walk. It was so many people. In fact, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that in one Passover week, just in five days or seven days, in one Passover week, 255 lambs were bought and sacrificed. That just goes to show you the number of merchants there and the number of sheep that were being slaughtered for sacrifice. It was a tremendous spectacle. In fact, that's seven times the population of Botetourt County, just if you're counting. <laughs> that's a lot, a lot. So here we have this place where the Gentiles are allowed to be in the presence of God. They come to pray. I mean, can you imagine trying to pray in the, in the, the hubbub of that uh, place? And Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He starts flipping tables over, right? He kicks tables over. And they ask him what he's doing this for. And Jesus responds and says, My house should be a house of prayer for the Gentiles, for all nations. And then we get to verse 18. And what are the people's reaction? The people are terrified. The people are shocked. Now, what was shocking to them? Well, on the one hand, if you were a Jew, you would have understood that uh, popular belief was that when the Messiah was going to come, he would purge the temple of foreigners. Jesus wasn't purging the temple of foreigners. What was he doing? He's really coming to be an advocate here for the foreigners, for the Gentiles, wasn't he? But here's what was even more radical. And here's why I think people were even more shocked. Because at the root of why Jesus was flipping tables over and, and causing a ruckus was because he was getting rid of the animal sacrifices. He was throwing the sacrificial system out that had been in place so that the Gentiles could be in relationship with God, so that the pagans could have access to God. 
they were shocked because they knew the purpose and the history of the tabernacle. Now, for us, we're not as shocked, right? For Mark's audience here, what he's writing to, they were shocked when they read this. They were shocked when they saw this. For us, we're not as shocked, but I, I think you need to be shocked. I want you to be shocked. So we're going to look a little bit at the background of the temple and the tabernacle. So hopefully you'll be shocked too. So let's just give a little quick understanding of the history of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Actually, the temple or the tabernacle of God starts back in the very beginning with the Garden of Eden. Now think about it like this. The Garden of Eden was a sanctuary, wasn't it? Wherever the presence of God was, that was where the sanctuary was. So Wherever the presence of God dwells, it was paradise because God's present, presence dwelt there, right? So in the presence of God, there was no evil, there was no death, there was no decay, there was no imperfection. None of these things could exist in the presence of God. So in the presence of God, there was absolute shalom. That's a, the Hebrew word for peace. And it's not like the fuzzy, joyful, peaceful, easy feeling like the eagle, eagle sang. You know, it's, that's not the kind of peace that Shalom is talking about. It's a, it talks about a, it means a, a flourishing. It means an absolute fulfillment or flourishing of love and joy and rest. It means being absolutely at peace. So that's what it was like in the presence of God. It was this Shalom. It was this flourishing. So in this first sanctuary or tabernacle, the Garden of Eden, Humans, Adam and Eve, what did they decide to do? Instead of relishing in that and enjoying that, they begin to build their lives on other things than this intimacy and relationship with God. They begin to center their lives on other things rather than the Father. I talked about several weeks back, we talked about this warped worship core and how the fall has given us this warped worship core where no longer do we find intimacy and relationship with God satisfying, but instead we try to find ultimate meaning and significance from other things than our relationship with God. And where, why did that happen? It happened because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve. They disobeyed the Lord. They turned from him and began to find ultimate meaning and significance in other things. And they lost that sanctuary, if you will, with God. And they were shut out of the first tabernacle, the garden. And as Adam and Eve left the garden, they turned around and looked at the garden. They were shut out of that first tabernacle, the presence of God. They turned around. And what did they see at the entrance to that garden? Do you remember? What does Genesis say? What did they see? A flaming sword? Did you hear that? Genesis 3 says, they saw a flaming sword turning every which way, flashing back and forth. And it was a sword that no one could subdue, that no one could escape, flashing back and forth. And back and forth. It was a flaming sword. And the point of that sword was, is it was barring their way back into the presence of God. It was barring their way back into paradise. And here's what this is about. See, we tend to build our lives on other things, whether it's power or status, right, or money or reputation. All those things are okay. But whenever we make those good things, they become ultimate things for us. We begin to build our life on something else other than God. When those good things become a God thing, wars break out, right? Families and relationships disintegrate. Disunity begins to rule instead of unity. Chaos begins to rule instead of peace. Conflict happens instead of peace. So turning from God has had horrifically horrible consequences, hasn't it? Instead of bringing life, turning from God, bringing life, what has it brought? It's brought death, hasn't it? And that means that 
you know, Adam and Eve could have said, okay, well, God, I'm sorry. Gosh, we blew it. You know, we should not have ever done that. We, should, we, we blew it. And I didn't mean for this to turn out so badly. Could we just get back into your presence? Because this whole being left to my own self and my desires is just not working out so well for me, the Lord. Can we, I'm sorry. Is that enough? Well, think about it like this. Many of you in this room have been wrong deeply. At some point in your life, you've been wrong deeply. You've been injured in some way. Perhaps you've been a victim of some kind of crime and it has injured you. It's harmed you. You've suffered. And the perpetrator comes to you and says, sorry, hey, can, can we just let it go this time? I'm sorry. You can't, no. <laughs> you can't say, just, we can't, I can just let it go. I'm sorry. That, you can't do that. You have committed a huge injustice towards me. And you know, it's not vindictive. It's not unforgiving if, if somebody has injured you and you're longing for justice because you've been greatly wrong, that's not wrong for you to feel that longing for justice. If you've been wronged, someone comes to you and says, gee, I'm sorry, isn't that enough? Can we just forget it this time? No, even our legal system, right, is based on that. If, if I were to go out and commit a murder, right, I can't just stand before the judge and say, gee, judge, I'm sorry, can you just let me off this time? No, there's going to be a penalty, right? If you've, you've been wrong, saying sorry isn't enough. More is required, right, than just saying, I'm sorry. Some kind of costly payment is needed to make things right. And that's where the flaming sword is. That's where it comes in. It's the sword of eternal justice, if you will. You see, nobody can get back into the presence of the Lord unless you go under the sword. You're under the judgment of the sword unless you face the sword, unless you pay and who could survive facing the sword? Nobody. So how will we ever get back into the presence of God? Because we see that question here. How do we get back into the presence of God? Who can survive the sword? And even though God has established the temple, he's established this tabernacle, he's established the sacrifices, that question, that problem still remains. How do we survive the sword? How do we get back into the presence of God? Well, if you go further into the temple, there's this place called the Holy of Holies. It is the innermost sanctuary of the temple. And it was this cube and, and uh, separating the outward inner sanctuary and the Holies of Holies was this giant curtain. I used to do a little bit of acting in high school. I know you all probably think that's hilarious. Yeah, it is hilarious. Good grief. Oh, it was awful. But anyway... I remember that, you know, standing behind that curtain on the stage, you know, it was, it was a thick, thick curtain. I mean, the curtain must have weighed hundreds of pounds. That was the picture here of this curtain separating the innermost sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, with the outer sanctuary. It was a thick, heavy, heavy curtain. And that thick curtain was there to protect people from the presence of God because behind that curtain in the Holy of Holies was the Shekinah glory of God. It was dangerous to us, you see. That's why there had to be this separation. And in fact, if you were a Gentile and you were in that great outer court, 35-acre-sized court, huge, and you were to walk towards the end of that courtyard, towards the wall of this, uh, the first room of that sanctuary, there was this great wall that divided the outer court with the beginning of the inner sanctuary. And written on inscriptions all along at different intervals on this wall, in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, it said this. It says, literally, this is what it said, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surrounds the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. 
You see, folks, being in the presence of God was serious business. Serious business. It was dangerous to be in the presence of God. And within the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the sanctuary, only once a year could one dude even go in there. And it was the high priest. And he would go in there trembling. They would literally tie a rope around his waist because if he came before the presence of the Lord with any stain on him, he would be instantly consumed and they would have to pull his body out. And so one guy, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he could not even go in there only for a brief time. With, he had to go in with a blood sacrifice before the Lord. Why? Because there is no way back to the presence of God without first going under the sword. And even then it was symbolic. It was symbolic. The, the, the high priest was just a symbol. It was symbolic. The blood was symbolic. He was just one person. None of us could all go into there. So how do we get back into the presence of God? It was just one person. And in fact, the Old Testament prophets continued to prophesy that the glory of God was going to come and it was going to cover the earth as the waters covered the sea. Even though there was this one priest going in there, someday the glory of the Lord would be revealed and then it would be opened. If you go to Zechariah, and last week we looked a little bit at Zechariah when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry in Jerusalem when he come in, came in riding a colt of a donkey. Jesus came in, right? This great king coming in riding on this little donkey, Zechariah prophesies. But after that prophecy in Zechariah, if you continue to read Zechariah, he continues his prophecy, and this is what he says. He says, this Messiah, this king, is going to come into Jerusalem riding on a foal of a donkey. And then he says this, when the Messiah comes back on that day, every pot or you know, bowl that you use to cook, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will become holy to the Lord God Almighty as the sacred bowls are holy in front of the altar, the Holy of Holies. And even the Canaanites will be in the house of the Lord Almighty. Now think about this. What Zechariah is saying here is that in that holy place, the Holy of Holies, there are these sacred pots, right? And they can only be used in that sacred place, the Holy of Holies. But Zechariah is saying someday when the Messiah comes, every pot and every kitchen will be just as holy as those pots are in the holiest of holies. And he's saying that even someday, the Canaanites, the hated enemy of Israel, will become available to come into the Lord's house. And they will be able to be right before the Lord. In other words, he's saying the whole world will become the holy of holies, he's saying. The whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Now, last week we saw the crowds waving palm branches. You know, we do that in many churches. Children come in Palm Sunday and they wave the palm branches and it's cute and it's special and there's nothing wrong with that. But that waving of palm branches that we saw in Mark 11 evokes some of these prophecies of the Old Testament about the return of the presence of God. Psalm 96, for instance, says this. The trees of the wood will sing for joy before the Lord when he comes to rule the earth. Go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 says this. The mountains and the hills will burst into song. These mountains behind us will burst into song before the Messiah. And the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Presley Ann and I just planted peas and potatoes uh, a few days ago. It's our first foray in gardening here in the state of Virginia. We hope that deer don't eat all of our garden. But it was fascinating, you know, putting this little pea seed or pea, whatever you call it, into the ground 
and then covering it over with dirt, and then you walk away, and voila, a few you know, weeks later, a plant grows. That's just a miracle, folks. But if we were to take that little seed, stick it in a pot, put that pot somewhere where it's dark, that never sees light, and it's cold, and never warms up, that seed will go in a state of, you know, what do you call it, of sleep, essentially, right? The seeds just kind of sleep. But they, if you bring them into the presence of warmth and of sun and of water, what happens? The miracle of life happens. They erupt into life. They sprout and come to life. And that's what Scripture's saying when we looked at Psalm and we looked at Isaiah, when we look at Zechariah, that everything in the world, even the plants, the trees, and the rocks, they are asleep. They are shadows of just what they could be in the presence of God's glory and their Creator. But when the presence of God comes with the Messiah, his glory will cover the earth once again and even the trees and the hills will clap their hands because they will be so enlivened by the glory of God. And if the trees and the hills are able to clap their hands, what about us? What will we be able to do? It'd be amazing ones. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, we want something else which can hardly be put into words. That is why the oldest stories we have peopled the air and the earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves. That is why our lifelong longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off is no more a fantasy. He's saying that we feel cut off from something. That there is something that we long to be reunited with, but we have felt cut off. And all of our fairy tales and all of our stories talk about being cut off from that something that we long for. But he says, it's not fantasy the truest index of our real situation, if we take the scripture seriously, it is the truest index of our real situation. Because God says in the word, in scriptures, that someday he will give us the morning star, talking about Jesus. And the trees and the hills will sing with us. And the ancient myths and the poetries and the stories, so false as we thought were history, really are truth as prophecy. They're going to come true, he says. So he's saying, listen, the Messiah is going to bring his glory to back to the earth. He is going to be our ultimate priest. He is going to be the temple, and his glory is going to come, and the trees and the mountains are going to erupt in praise and clap their hands. It's going to be amazing. And he is going to mediate the presence of God, and we are going to be surrounded by his glory, and we are going to be fully healed and fully restored. That's amazing. But there is still that problem with the sword. What about the sword? What do we do with the sword? Well, Isaiah tells us this. Isaiah says that the Messiah will come, and when he comes, he will be cut off, he says, from the land of the living. Think about this in Revelation. Do you remember John in the book of Revelation, which he wrote, when he stands before the throne of the universe? It is the most powerful place in the world, the throne of the universe, God's throne. It's where its ultimate rule and ultimate power is. And John stands, and he looks at the throne of the universe, and what does he see? What does he describe that he sees? A great, powerful lion? God's glory revealed? No, a slaughtered lamb. That's what he says he sees. At the great throne of the universe, John sees a slaughtered lamb. I can't think of a greater image of weakness and vulnerability than a slaughtered lamb. Why? Because the greatest kingly triumph in the history of the world, of the universe, is when Jesus Christ went under the sword. See, Jesus went under the sword for you. 
He was smote by the sword and his body was broken and pierced by the sword. But when Jesus was broken by the sword, he broke the sword itself as well. Because the Bible talks about the death of death and the death of Christ. You see, when Christ died on the cross, he defeated death, the death of death and the death of Christ. Jesus took the sword for you and me and he defeated death. He defeated the sword. He took it. That's why it says at the end of Mark uh, chapter 15, do you remember this? The moment Jesus dies on the cross, what happens to that great veil in the temple? Do you remember? It's ripped from top to bottom. It is torn in two, ripped in half. And in that moment, when that curtain was ripped, the temple became obsolete. There was no more reason for the temple. It became obsolete. Scott Peck was a famous psychologist, and he was quoted by saying, how do you defeat evil? That's a great question. I don't really understand how you defeat evil, but here's what I do know. I do know that whenever you see evil defeated, somebody had to sacrifice. Whenever you see evil defeated, think about every story you've read or every piece of literature you've read. When evil was defeated, somebody had to sacrifice. There had to be a sacrifice. Somebody had something to lose. And then he goes on and quotes C.S. Lewis. Do you remember this from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the witch defeats Aslan, right? And he dies. And then he's gone, and Lucy is just beside herself, broken, thinking this is the end. And then Aslan comes back. And do you remember what he says? He explains to her, listen, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's place, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That's the death and resurrection of Christ, folks. And so as a Christian, we would sing and say, the terrors of the law and of God with me have nothing to do for my Savior's obedience and blood hides all of my transgressions from view. Folks, that's the power of Jesus Christ and what he is going to bring back into our lives if we trust him. You see, when you trust him, he longs to bring that power. He longs to restore that original design of intimacy that you have been created to have with the God of the universe. He longs to give you the Holy Spirit who will grow you and comfort you. And someday he is going to come back again and this whole world is going to be transformed and we are going to see the mountains declare the glory of God. Once again, creation will be bathed in his glory. But there's still the thing about this fig tree. This is a curious story here. Isn't it a curious parable when you read this fig tree? You see, we're not quite done yet because we've seen the power and the character of Christ, but you see, he wants to work that power and that character in us. And so we see this very curious story about the fig tree, right? And on the surface, it doesn't look very good for Jesus because he sees this fig tree and he wants to get some fruit. He goes to the tree, there's no fruit, and he curses it. And it makes Jesus kind of look bad, doesn't it? It's just a good old fig tree. But what does he do? So he sees, verse 13, he sees this fig tree in leaf from a distance. He goes up to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, Mark tells us. And so what does he say to the tree? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now that sounds terrible. He goes to the tree, goes to get a, time for, goes to get a fig. It's not time for figs. And so he doesn't see any on it, and he curses it. 
doesn't make sense to a lot of folks. But here's the deal, you see, he's not getting back at the tree. It's not like he's frustrated and he's kicking the dog, you know. He's not doing that. It's not that he's frustrated. It's not that he's cynical. That It's not like he loses track of his messiahship for a minute. You see, what he's really doing here is getting in your face and getting in my face. Not in the tree's face. He's getting into my face and your face. See, he's not dealing with the fig tree. He's dealing with us here. And you can better understand this if you realize, and this is something I didn't know. I learned this this week as I was studying, that fig trees produced two kinds of fruit. I didn't realize this. I didn't understand this, but as, as the fig tree was beginning in the springtime to start beginning to poke those leaves through, there was another kind of nodule on that tree. And that nodule was very good to eat. So as the tree was literally beginning to leaf, there were these little nodules that would pop up all over the tree that you could pop off, put in your mouth, and eat. They were nutritious and delicious. So Jesus, walking by the tree, hoping to grab a little nodule to eat, pop them in his mouth, sees that the tree is in leaf, but there are no nodules on this tree. This was proved to me by my brother-in-law who was visiting last weekend. We have peach trees in my yard, and I could tell one of them just wasn't looking so good, but I walked by it the other day, and it had buds all over, and I was like, all right, lots of peaches. And my brother-in-law said, mm, it's not good news for that tree. I was like, what? <laughs> if there's buds all over it. And he says, oh, those are leaf buds. There are no nodules. It's not going to have any fruit. It means most likely that tree is diseased and probably doesn't have much longer. I was like, oh, my peach tree. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Why do you have to be a forester and know this kind of stuff? But that's, that was the picture here. This tree had leaves but no nodules. The fruit was gone. You know, he walks by and he's hoping that he would get something about this tree, but he realizes that the nodules are there and it tells them that there's something wrong, that this tree is diseased, it was sick. There was something wrong at the core of it. From a distance, the tree looked okay, but its root was dying. And that's what Jesus is saying here and pronouncing this tree accursed, dead. And he gives this parable within the sandwich here, verse 11 and verse 15, right? When Jesus was coming to the temple and then he was returning to the temple, you have this little incident about the fig tree. And it explains it very simply. That Jesus here giving us this parable of the fig tree is teaching us about hollow religiosity. You see... Jesus was about to walk into that temple, right? And it was a very busy place, wasn't it? The temple. Tens of thousands of folks there. You go and you see that and go, man, this place is on fire. This place is busy. Lots of stuff's happening here. You know, Wellspring can be a very busy place, can't it? Any church that you attend can look very busy. And, and it's very easy for us to judge the health of a church by how busy it is. Lots of activities. Nothing wrong with activities. Nothing wrong with program. But it's very easy for us to default and judge how something is doing because it's busy. I think that can parallel with us in our own spiritual life, can it? We can be busy for the Lord. And it looks really, really good on the outside. But on the inside, we are hungering spiritually. And we are dying on the inside. And there's real spiritual hunger down in your heart. And being busy is not satisfying it. You see, Jesus wasn't callous here in cursing this tree. In fact, Mark was so concerned that we walk away with the true intent of this parable because really this parable is about grace. It's about Jesus showing real grace here. One of my favorite short story writers is Flannery O'Connor. And I love the way she writes. Some of her stories are pretty dark and they're, you know, you read them and it's a kidney punch. It kind of wakes you up. And her whole intent is, she says that, listen, I write for people And some people that I write for, 
they hold the same beliefs that I do, and I can go easy on them. You know, I can just write a pretty basic short story for them, and they get it. But she says, there are lots of folks who read my works who don't think the way I think, and I can't assume that they think the way I think, and so I have to make my vision, my story, come to them by shock. I, she says, to the hard of hearing, I have to shout, and to the almost blind, I have to draw large and startling figures, she says. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's drawing large and startling figures here. And see, folks, this is His grace. Because He's showing us that this tree, this fixed tree, is like the nation of Israel. That many people of God, they, they seem like they were alive on the outside, but they were spiritually barren. And He says in John 15, He says that those who bear no fruit will be cast out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth for an eternity. Folks, that is the most loving thing that Jesus could tell us. Because see, you can walk away from this story with two conclusions. The first conclusion is, gee, Jesus, you're rough. You're tough here. I, I don't like that. You know, I, I, I don't, you're cynical and I don't like the way you're dealing with this and you're using your power to curse this tree. I don't like it. Or we can walk away with the conclusion that the spiritual fruitfulness of your life is of immense importance, folks. It is the most important thing in the world for you is your spiritual fruit. And if we ignore it, we ignore it to our peril. Beloved, hear that. If you ignore this, you ignore it to your eternal peril, folks. Are you seeing signs of transformation, spiritual transformation in your life? And I'm not saying that, gee, I've licked lust and I've conquered pride and I've defeated anxiety and worry. I never worry anymore. I'm not prideful and I don't lust. Well, <laughs> yeah, you do. I'm not saying you've defeated those things. Here's what I am saying. Are you experiencing transformation? At your core, do you know Jesus? Here's a great test is ask somebody that loves you. <laughs> Go ask your husband and your wife, sweetie, am I, am I growing? Am I being transformed? Your spouse would love to tell you, I'm sure. <laughs> If, you don't, if you're not married, go, go ask a friend. Go ask your parents. Go ask your grandfather. Do you see transformation in my life? Or are you just busy with religious activity? You see, folks, the root produces the fruit. The root produces the fruit. What's the root? That be, Jesus was both the rest and the storm in Mark. Jesus was both the victim of the sword and the wielder of the sword. You see that? And either you kill him by rejecting him, or as I said last week, you crown him by submitting yourself to him again and again. You see, the root is resting and cherishing and clinging and loving the person and the grace and the power of Jesus, and you are yielding yourself to him again and again and again, you're yielding your little P power to his giant P big power because he is the one who produces fruit in us as we yield to his power. You see, we're not fruit producers. You can try, oh, I'm going to strain to make some spiritual fruit, you know, and here comes a spiritual fruit. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. He is the fruit producer in your life. And fruit only happens in relationship, folks. Get this. It never happens in empty religion. Never. 
It only happens in the context of relationship. Jack Miller said this. He said, the measure of Christ's glory is the difference between what you would be by your own nature and what you are because of Christ. What are you because of Jesus? Have you trusted him? Or are you just an empty religious vessel? And when people come to you for help, they walk away spiritually famished. Or do you have the wellspring of the gospel of Jesus with inside of you? And as people come to you, they are nourished because of Jesus. Oh, that's my hope for you, beloved. I love you as a congregation. I long for you to see, you know, even if our church never grows beyond 120 people, that's okay. It really is. I want to see 120 people who love Jesus and who are spiritually nourished and are growing in their transformation, not because they're trying harder, but because they're depending harder on Jesus. That's powerful stuff, folks. He is a powerful God who loves you. Would you submit to him? Would you crown him by submitting to him instead of killing him by rejecting him? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you are all-powerful. And Lord, we need your help. We do. And I thank you that, Lord Jesus, you delight to help weak people like us. So I pray that we would come to you in weakness, not in strength. But instead, we come to you humbly. Would you humble us, Holy Spirit? Would you reveal our sin to us and then quickly reveal us to Jesus, reveal Jesus to us? For every one look at our sin, I pray that we would see ten looks at the beauty and the glory of Jesus. So help us, Father, I pray. Would you bless this congregation today that they would walk away, Father, growing in deeper dependence and in love of you and growing in less love of themselves. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus, our King and our Savior. Amen.